There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Trump can't bring back the factory, and he said he could. I don't know how many people believed him. But they see the closure of the factory as a first domino that's led to a collapse of their community. And Trump is the only one saying, this whole thing has been bad. While Marco Rubio would say, some of this is bad and we have to look at it, but trade generally is good. Welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jane Koston, filling in for Ezra Klein. And today, my guest is Tim Carney, commentary editor at the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Tim's latest book, Alienated America, examines how, in his view, a breakdown of private institutions like churches and private organizations have contributed to a breakdown of social ties in communities across the country. Visiting small towns and big cities alike, Carney argues that religious institutions form a much-needed glue that keeps communities together. And the loss of that glue contributed to the sense of remove that led to Trump's primary victories in 2015 and 2016. As Carney writes, Trump helped to fill the void caused by a loss of connecting institutions. We discussed his book, How Communities of Color Have Responded Differently to Institutional Loss, and Christianity's Role in How We Think About These Communities. We also discussed the Bible and the story of Christ's transfiguration because the Ezra Klein Show offers something for everyone. I hope this conversation is as interesting for you to listen to as it was for me to have. As always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Tim Carney. I'm really interested in talking about the book because I actually was just having a conversation on Twitter about why I always read the comments. I was talking to two conservative libertarian reading writers, and one of them made the point that, like, aren't the people who write internet comments the people, generally men, who are at home all day and have nothing to do? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think that that group of people is surprisingly important in our politics. And in an interesting way, that's something that you get at in this book, which is that if you look county by county at areas that Trump won during the primaries that tended to show areas of alienation, areas mm -hmm. of a lack of civic engagement or opportunities for civic engagement. And that those areas, it wasn't necessarily about folks who go out and work in oil fields where there's lots of jobs and lots of money, but not a lot of civic engagement. Yep. So it's not necessarily about money. It's about the lack of civic togetherness. That, that's exactly right. There there were lots of things that I thought were confused in trying to analyze kind of where does uh, working class middle American suffering come from? Where did Donald Trump come from? And I thought the ones that were flawed were the ones that just looked at individuals and just looked at sort of a materialistic explanation for either the suffering or the politics. And so on the latter part, yes, that having money is very correlated with sort of success in life, 
however, counting it in ways that liberals, conservatives, libertarians, et cetera, would all agree on. You're less likely to get addicted to drugs if you're in a place that has more money. If you yourself have more money, you're more likely to get married. You're more likely to self-report happiness. But then what I'm trying to argue here is that that's because not the money itself, but that for the most part, the people who have strong connectedness, as you're saying, who belong, who have a sense of purpose, who are plugged into their neighbors, et cetera, plugged into institutions, that those tend to be people who live in kind of elite places. So that's why I try in the book to I point to places that are more middle class, these heavily religious places in, right. in Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, Salt Lake City, where you don't have to be really rich. You don't have to have a college degree to be plugged into that. So that that's number one is that I think we're being overly materialistic if we assume that the struggles of the working class are just material and cultural deprivation. And then on, on the politics, too, I say that it's uh, the places. If you look at the – and this is such a key point for – especially for wonky think tank type people. It's easy to just think of people as people. Right. But people are people in places. We right. live in community. This we is live a, in a society. This is a society. We live in society, yes. So – when we want to understand why some people aren't doing as well, why some people are more likely to say the American dream is dead, we have to look at where they are. There were polls that said, oh, Trump's supporters in the early primaries were wealthier than the average American. And then there were other studies that said, if you live in a place with more foreclosures, more bankruptcy, more men dropping out of the labor force, Trump did better in those places that were suffering. And the key there, again, the individuals who originally, early on, got on that Trump train, who never voted before until Trump jumped in the race, they weren't necessarily the ones who were suffering the most, but they were living in places that were collapsing. So that's what Alienated America is about, is that where you live, the, the, the social cohesion and social trust of where you live is a key to having the good life. You talk about going to some of the very early primary states and seeing how the people who were helping Trump win in some of those primary areas, they weren't connected to other people. These were kind of a disconnected movement of sorts, but a disconnected movement in favor of one person. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that people might have been looking for a strong man, but can you tell me a little bit more about, okay, people who were supportive of Trump early on, obviously not the same people who got on board in the general, as you make that point. What did they think Trump would do? I talk a lot about how Trump was perhaps the best example of a politician who did something which is, I think, very unusual, which is to present himself as a blank slate upon which you could project whatever it is you wanted onto. It's interesting now to see people comparing Bernie Sanders and Trump, which is a strange thing to do, but kind of makes sense from an enthusiasm standpoint. But mm -hmm. in a weird way, Sanders is the opposite in that he, he has a lot of ideas. He is very much baked into who he is. It's just it's that is projected onto and here's what would happen if all of this happened. But Trump very much was like, I will be whatever it is you need me to be. So what did when you talk to yeah. folks, what did people who felt as if their country had left them behind, or there was a lot of talk about how, oh, I don't trust my neighbors. Yep. You know, I keep a gun by the front door. Yep. What did they think Trump would change or do about it? I, th I think you already said like eight things I could argue with, but, but I'll, okay. I'll, I'll try. I'll try to answer your question. First of all, Barack Obama did say I became the blank canvas onto which people could project their hopes and dreams. Like that was one of his successful points. So it's very interesting that our last two presidents are these blank canvases. Somebody should probably write a book on that, the blank canvas in American <laughs> politics. Number two, 
Yeah, that, your question is kind of the question that I never got an answer to. And I'm, I'm going to tell you a great story from sort of where, where the book came from. I got asked by an editor, do you have a question you don't have an answer to? And I said, I want to know why all these people think the American dream is dead. So to reiterate your point, I'm not talking about the people who chose Trump over Hillary. There right. are 10,000 reasons to do that. And I know of, of all my friends who voted for Trump over Hillary, they all have completely different reasons. And a lot of it is just you tend to vote for a Republican. I'm talking about the people who never voted before. And now they're waiting four hours outside a rally outside of Milwaukee. What was motivating these people? And so I wanted to know. And as I was finishing up the book, I played back all my interviews. My earliest interview, I asked a guy, I said, you're wearing a hat and a scarf to say, make America great again. What's not great about America? And I thought he was going to say something about immigrants or something about trade or something about the sexual revolution or, or, or whatever. I had all different explanations for why people would think this. And I read about them. And the guy said something along the lines of, well, when I was a kid, we had Memorial Day parades and all the Boy Scouts and all the Girl Scouts and all the Little League would walk down and the Boy Scouts would go and plant American flags in the, in the cemetery in town. And I cut the guy off and I say, no, no, no. <laughs> I want to know sort of what you're voting on that explains how America's not great. Like what's Trump going to fix? And the guy sort of patiently tries to walk me through <laughs> what later became the thesis of my book, but I wasn't listening for it in the very beginning, which is that the American dream seems dead to him because where he lives now in outside of Charlotte is a place that doesn't have strong community where he doesn't have an, a way to sort of flex his political muscle through a rotary club, through anything else. The same sort of thing that draws people to Bernie Sanders, people wanting to be involved and connected and organized. And I tried to press him on that question. So is Trump going to like restore Memorial Day parades again? We're going to be able to say Merry Christmas, I guess. What all of that meant was really, so I'm married, and one of the things that men have a hard time figuring out when you have a wife is that when she is telling you about something that's wrong, she's not saying, you, in the middle of me telling you this, go off and fix a problem. She's saying, you have to listen and keep listening and acknowledge what I'm suffering. I think a lot of voters just wanted that. Somebody say, yeah, the American dream is dead. And those guys in Washington, the elites, they're dumb and they're ripping you off. Basically, what Trump has done for them, for the most part, is punch the bad guys in the face. He's made Jim Acosta look bad. And they feel like Jim Acosta was out to get them. He's, he's obviously pissed off the swamp. He's triggered the libs because they're impeaching him. And for a lot of voters, voters aren't policy voters. And a lot of voters don't think the government's going to do anything positive for them. And so sort of to make the right people upset is some of what he's done for them. He hasn't, you know, really curtailed low-skilled immigration in such a way that's driving up low-skilled wages. But on the other hand, wages at the bottom quarter are going up. I don't attribute that to any unique Trump policy, but things are getting better in the economy and he's pissing off the right people. So it's interesting because I was thinking about how much of conservatism in some ways isn't inherently – and when I say this word, sometimes it comes – like there's like a negative connotation to it, but I don't mean it as that way. It, conservatism has for throughout its history been inherently a reaction to something, a reactionary movement, mm -hmm. the idea of being like – you're standing athwart something, you're standing athwart progressivism. Yeah. And so do you see 
for those voters, the idea of like, I don't think we can get back to where we were, but maybe Trump can stop it for a little while. I, I do think that's some of it. And then you, it's easy to just focus on the policy issues yeah. and just look at immigration or just look at trade and that sort of thing. But I, I think if you're if you're that that's sort of the surface that I, I use the image in the book of the first domino. Right. The first domino has already fallen. China's already sort of taken all of our jobs. The factories already closed down. But if you think that that's the beginning and the end of the problem, then you're missing the problem. Then you have to go to Uniontown, Pennsylvania, which used to be a steel town, and see that the factory isn't the only thing that closed down. The coffee shop that where the factory workers went closed down. The Methodist church closed down. The Catholic church consolidated with a parish in a different county. In Fayette City, the bar, the owner's can't stay open more than two nights a week. They're trying to sell it and nobody's willing to buy it. And the newsstand is the only thing open in Fayette City. And so people don't have that many places to come and gather. And so you know your neighbors less. Trump can't bring back the factory. And he said he could. I don't know how many people believed him. But they see the closure of the factory as a first domino that's led to a collapse of their community. And Trump is the only one saying, this whole thing has been bad. While a Marco Rubio would say, you know, some of this is bad, and we have to look at it, but trade generally is good. That's what I would say. The community collapse is bad. Trade is good. But then we're sort of minimizing their suffering by not just saying this whole development, this globalist development that has led to the destruction of Fayette County, Uniontown, and Fayette City, this whole thing is bad. Trump was most willing to curse the changes that have led to real suffering in these people's lives. And this is something I want to I want to I really drive home. I've got lots of points here that are mostly for a conservative audience. For a liberal audience, I would say the suffering of the working class in middle America is real. It's not just old, white, straight Christian guys are upset that they lost their privilege. It's not just people looking on, worried that a black guy became president. The suffering and struggling of the working class in middle America is real. Just like the suffering and the struggling of the non-white working class in lots of rural and urban places is real. White working class guys, the sons of the people who had the factory jobs 30 years ago, those guys really are struggling. So I have a a lot of thoughts based on that. But I think the first would be, I know that you looked at a host of different communities, but Chris Arnade, who wrote the book Dignity, Mm -hmm. um, when we spoke, he raised the point, and he said it on Twitter, that for white working class voters, their response to a political downturn for them has been to vote for a Trump or a Pat Buchanan or Mm -hmm. a Ron Paul or something like that. Black working class voters don't vote. They drop out of voting. I think about this all the time. There was a really great New York Times piece uh, from Milwaukee right after the 2016 election of a host of black voters who were just like, I didn't vote for anyone. I don't like any of these people. I am out of this. Based on the work that you've done, why do you think that different working class communities deal with political and cultural and societal downturns differently? There's going to be a million reasons. But one thing to keep in mind is that that white working class voter mostly did drop out. If you remember, the the best post-2012 analysis was by Sean Trend, who wrote about the missing white voter. Right. And it wasn't quite enough to make Romney lose. Most of the reason Romney lost, this analysis said, is because he said there's working class white, not really attached to religious institution voters from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Iowa who stayed home. Had they voted, it's possible Romney would have won some or all of those states. 
And so I would argue that uh, a lot of the, the, the white working class vote had started tuning out. So a lot of what I do, and you read my books, you know, is bar reporting. Right. And so starting in 02 through like the 06 cycle, I slowly learned what kind of bars to go to and what kind of bars not to go to. If you go to a college bar, A, college kids don't vote. B, they're from out of state. C, they're getting too drunk. Hotel bar, they're all from out of state. Yuppie Irish pubs were like the sweet spot. You had black and white and Hispanic and male and female and old and young and a lot of like she's voting for Romney and he's voting for Obama couples. It was great. Yeah. One place that I was skipping for years were the roadside country bars because I would pull over. You go in. You start talking about the economy. You try to gently bring it over towards politics. Universally, they would say politics is a bunch of BS. I don't vote and I'm not going to talk about it. 2016. Politics is a bunch of BS. That's why I'm voting for Donald Trump. Right. So there was this disaffected white population that was pushed totally away from politics. And these people in Pennsylvania weren't voting for Pat Toomey for Senate, but they were voting for Donald Trump. Pat Toomey was just another politician, conservative, Republican, maybe my favorite U.S. senator. They weren't voting for him, but they were voting for Donald Trump. So what I would say is that Hillary Clinton certainly was not the candidate who was going to bring the disaffected working class black voter out of that same state of political inaction. Whether Bernie or Biden is, is an excellent question. And Biden's excellent performance in polls of black voters early on is promising in that Obama obviously brought out the black vote that hadn't been turned out before. And I do see Bernie turning out lots of people who wouldn't vote if right. he weren't on the ballot. So I'm interested in that idea of Trump being seen as outside of politics, which is very much how he kind of positioned himself. Oh, yeah. I've been talking a lot about pro wrestling on Twitter, because once you start thinking about politics as pro wrestling, you just can't stop. It's just all Fabian work yeah. and work shoots and stuff. But he was the one who was like, I know how to do this. This is what I do. And I think that that's been something I, I've tried to point out and think about a lot is in office, there's the Trump administration and there's Donald Trump. And a lot of times those two things have been very different things. Oh, yeah. But obviously, there's going to be a big shift in how he positions himself for 2020. But in 2020, he will be positioning himself as I'm this politician who got these things done. There is an idea that Trump ran on the economy against Hillary Hillary was saying America is already great. Yep. The economy is doing better. People are doing better. And Trump was like, the stock market's a lie. All of this is a lie. None of these indicators are real. Everybody's suffering. And people are like, sounds fair. Now Trump is the one who's going to be like, look at the stock market. Look at your 401ks. A lot of Americans don't have 401ks. Mm -hmm. Everything's great. Let's just keep on going. And Bernie is going to be the one saying, hang on a second. The working class is still suffering. You're not listening. You're just helping Wall Street fat cats. How do you think that kind of changing relationship it will impact 2020? I mean, certainly given that Trump is not like a guy who focuses on governance, running for re-election will introduce challenges that running against the system didn't uh, pose. But again, I think it probably rings false for a lot of people to say the economy is only working for the rich. Because if you look at wages, the bottom quarter of income earners have seen a much higher increase in their wages than the average and certainly than the top quarter of. And there's the unemployment's down to 3.5 percent. So Trump doesn't have to just point to the stock market. He will. But you can say stock market's doing well. 
and there's fewer people out of work. And as a result, the working class guys are are getting jobs that, you know, the previous president shifted off to China. And we can debate about the cause and effect. But, you know, in a political race, if you can point out the fact that more people are working and that wages are going up for the people who need their wages to go up the most, I think that's going to be pretty successful. And ironically, the people I found in Iowa who sort of bought into the the talk that, oh, the economy's not doing great for everybody most, were sort of retired baby boomers, <laughs> people who aren't partaking in the great economy, but instead are just getting their, their pensions or 401ks. Right. They're spending down their 401ks instead of building them up. And that there are people who uh, are kind of doing okay, like upper middle class people who are retired are the ones who aren't seeing the gain. And they kind of get these like nice blue collar points by saying, yeah, yeah, Pete's right. Buttigieg is right. The economy is not doing well for the regular guy. Just look at me. You're not the regular guy if you're a retired banker in in Sioux City. So I, I think that, that Trump will have trouble running against the system. I mean, and you see – He's attacking as swamp creatures the very people he hired, right. whether it's Bolton. He hired the Goldman Sachs guy. Right. He hired I think the Boeing guy. Like, I think that that's the thing is that how much of that was a position to take. Like the idea of I'm going to drain the swamp when you're hiring people who install soundproof booths in their offices or something like that. Like I think it's interesting how much of Trump and how much of politics in general it relies somewhat on signaling. And I I hate the term virtue signaling. I wrote a piece in New York Magazine about it because virtue signaling basically relies on the idea that everyone is actually secretly terrible. And Mm -hmm. that if you indicate your virtue by doing something in public, that just shows that you're just a big liar. And I remember to do research for this, (laughs) I had to show them all of these tweets of people tweeting at the Pope, like, stop virtue signaling. And I'm like, (laughs) I think the pontiff is allowed to signal virtue as that is kind of the point of the pontiff in some ways, but it's interesting to me how much of that is signaling. And that actually gets me to something I want to talk about, which is the role that religion plays here. Yep. Because I would argue that you talk to a lot of people, again, these early Trump supporters, not the people who vote in the general, who were defined themselves as being evangelical Christians. Yep. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. And sometimes I feel as if when I talk about Christianity for people who aren't listening, I'm like, just like, there's no like verifying body to determine whether or not you're an evangelical Christian. Like both of us, um, I was raised Catholic. So we both, you know, we were confirmed, did our first communion, we're in. Like technically. There's actual paperwork on file. Yes, like legally. Well, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Church legally. I'm like, I'm in until I say I'm out. But for evangelicals, there's there isn't that system. And so I always find it funny when people talk about like, oh, evangelical Christians. I'm like, which ones? Because technically, like Methodists are evangelical. But anyway, the people who won, who Trump won over were evangelical Christians who did not go to church. Yes. The best description of the early Trump supporters, white evangelical White, self-defined, self-described evangelical who does not go to church. So I think that for a lot of people whose experience of faith is very much tied up in going to a place of worship, going to synagogue, going Mm -hmm. to a mosque. And you point this out. If you're driving up towards Ann Arbor and going through to Toledo, you talk to the folks at the mosque in Toledo, which you can see on that highway, which is always how I knew. I was like 45 minutes away from home. Or you you talk to people who are Orthodox, for whom going to the place is their yeah. religious practice. 
also because I think that going to the place reinforces what it is that you are there to do. For people within a Christian or a Catholic tradition, it's a confessorial experience. You receive the body and blood of Christ. You are within this experience, and that is your faith. When you talk to people for whom that wasn't their experience, mm-hmm. when you talked about faith, yeah. what did they base their faith on? Well, so, again, in Christianity, again, the Catholic Church, it's actually an obligation every right. Sunday and on these other days to go. And it's a grave sin to skip Mass because— A mortal sin. A mortal sin. that to, It's it's the highest level of sin to, to skip Mass just out of laziness or you wanted to do something else. And we have a miracle called the Eucharist at Mass that you're partaking in uh, if, if you're in a state of grace. So, like, attendance is really important. Right. That's not true in other uh, other religions, but still a huge number of Protestants, evangelicals will go every Sunday, especially right. if they have family. It's a huge part of, of their central identity. But if you think about it, the phrase that almost no Catholic ever uses, which is personal relationship with Christ, ah, yes. is still at the heart of Christianity. Yes. In the end, this is a one-on-one thing. Jesus right. died for me, for Tim right. Carney. Jesus died for you, for Jane right. Coaston. It was an individual thing. He knows us all by name. We are getting our souls into heaven. We can help other people, but we can't get somebody else into heaven. It's not right. like throwing somebody in a lifeboat. In the end, it's a one-on-one thing. Right. But humans are being fallen, and in a particular way, our nature is that we need other people. Right. Aristotle says man's a political animal. The Bible says, you know, people are not made to be alone. There's a reason that God came down as another person for us, that we need other people. Right. And so my understanding of Christianity is very interpersonal. And that was true even before I was a Christian. I became a Catholic as an adult after college. But just reading the Bible, reading philosophy, I went from understanding Christianity as sort of this one-on-one thing with God to building an infrastructure. Right. If you just think about it from a religious perspective, what I'm doing in in this book is trying to say, for people to have a good life, you need to have an infrastructure of institutions that connect you with other people. And so sociologically, church attendance is what's correlated with all the good outcomes yeah. of more likely to give to charity. Being Christian or Jewish or Muslim doesn't make you more likely to give to charity. Going to a weekly service makes you more likely to give to charity, both secular and religious. But it's very easy to see how somebody would say, these institutions are corrupt. I mean, my church is is full of (laughs) corruption and evil. Other churches, some of these churches that go to in Iowa, like they replace Christianity with conservative politics. Others replace Christianity with like bad pop music. These institutions are corrupt. God is not corrupt. So I'm going to stay home and have a personal relationship. And so that sort of distrust of institutions, which is not totally unearned, that's a huge part of the evangelical who does not go to church. So now you see why that person is going to be incredibly attracted to Donald Trump, who is bashing all the institutions, particularly government, but kind of saying all of these institutions are rigged against you. You are kind of on your own. And so I alone can solve it. I thought an interesting point you make in the book is that Obama in 2012 has the you didn't build that moment, mm-hmm. which a lot of conservatives were just like, I absolutely did build that. You yeah. know, I, I went full John Galt and I did this thing all by myself. And obviously they were kind of the context of that particular moment yeah. talking about um, specific government programs yeah. or infrastructure. But the idealization of individuality, uh, yeah, which it, you go into a little bit, it is not a liberal Prog like yeah. project necessarily the idea that like 
I alone stand here. And I think that when we're talking about evangelicals, a lot of evangelicals who don't go to church would think yeah. of themselves as being conservative. How tied to that idea of individuality is that idea of their own faith? Yeah, individualism and even a sort of individualism that will extend itself out to the nuclear family. Right. And again, these are problems that I mostly address to a, a conservative audience right. is say, no, you didn't build it. My wife and I, we have six kids. We kind of have a small dining room. So we needed a dining room table that was just the right size to fit all our kids at dinner. And also we needed to have benches instead of chairs because we couldn't fit enough chairs around. Right. So my wife asked me to build it for her. And so when I built these benches and this table and I saw my kids sitting at it, I had to be like, I did build that. <laughs> but guess what? I did not build the miter saw. I did not build the circular saw. I did not build the nicely planed and squared piece of wood. And I certainly, and Adam Smith goes on for many pages about it, did not build the screws and nails that went into that table. And so, like, that idea of complementary goods, of how commerce involves specialization, is sort of a capitalist argument against the, I did build that thing. And I don't know enough about other faiths, but I do mention in passing in the book that, like, Judaism is about being part of a people. Right. Christianity is inherently an interpersonal thing. My my Catholic church is certainly an interpersonal thing. The Muslim communities I spoke to in Toledo talked about how like offering prayer together sort of doesn't just add the the the, the force together, it multiplies it. And so all these major religions are inherently communal. And that what you said earlier about conservatism often reacting, when conservatism reacts against Obama calling for tax cuts by saying you didn't build that, it goes in an overly individualistic way. But the more interesting one is when Hillary said it takes a village to raise a child, taken literally, that's absolutely true. Right. Now, a lot of people said she was talking about big government, et cetera. Fine, react against that. But it doesn't take just a mom and a dad to raise a child. It, it really takes neighbors and friends. And not to say a mom and a dad without support can't do it. It's much, much harder to do it. Just like a single mom is going to have a much harder time, a mom and dad with no community family support. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not made to do that. In the book, which obviously is written to a mostly conservative audience, you argue that a lot of this comes as a result of centralized government. Mm -hmm. The replacement of institutions like churches or even kind of that Memorial Day parade or something like that with a government ethos that the government should handle this, that mm -hmm. the, the government's better at handling. And a more centralized government. Right. Rather and than you a... point that back to the progressive era. The progressive era took place in reaction to something. Some of it was a bunch of people reading The Jungle and not getting socialism, but definitely getting like, we need the Pure Food and Drugs Act right now. Mm -hmm. This book is terrifying. But the progressive era is taking place not just in an era of like, we can perfect humanity, which folks like Woodrow Wilson absolutely thought was possible. The yep. idea of we have the power to improve humanity. They are also reacting to what has come before. They are reacting to a increased industrialization yep. and the, the consequences of industrialization. Well, industrialization is itself a centralization, right? Right. Because I, I when you I, talked a little bit about how the idea of the factory floor, which then necessitates unions, not just for workers to have rights, but places where you, people can come together. Yes. So uh, Frederick Taylor was a, uh, I think it was a, a British writer in, the, in their Industrial Revolution who said, sort of, now in this scientific age, we have to treat all parts of production as being basically like machine parts. Right. So you treat your workers like machine parts. Taylorism. Yes. When workers are treated that way, <laughs> they're not going to 
in turn treat their bosses like regular people. They're going to say, I'm going to do as little work as possible for as much pay as possible. Right. And that's destructive because you're, I mean, if you work in sort of a white collar setting in America, you probably have a boss who cares about you and wants you to do well, or at least feels the need to treat you like a human. You probably, if a new deadline comes up because of something unexpected, you'll think, okay, I guess I'm going to do this or, or the guy next to me is going to have to do it. You're, there's a lot more of that for a lot of elites. Certainly as journalists, yeah. we want to do more for our outlets. We want our outlets to do well. That's not going to be the case in a lot of working class situations. And that, again, the progressive era was a reaction to some of the thinking of the Industrial Revolution, which, again, had this dehumanizing nature. One of the things I try to push back on and that I encounter a lot when I'm reading stuff on the left is an idea that people carrying that the employer is the enemy attitude and, and stating that not as a reaction to the employer treating them poorly, but saying that's how it ought to be. Like I was talking to a progressive who said, I hate the fact that these companies are increasingly setting up dining rooms in, you know, like feeding you lunch right. at work. Because what that's just trying to do is that's just trying to make you sort of feel better about the fact that you're not getting paid better. And I thought, if you're making workers feel good, <laughs> isn't that good? And that sometimes I think on the left, too many people are so materialistic that they say, no, just give us more money. And I'm thinking, if you paid me $5,000 more a year and took away $5,000 more in food, I don't know that I would be happier. I think that human happiness will involve us all kind of being in it together. And too much of people who are, are on, the, on the labor perspective of, of things say, no, the employer is not your friend and you shouldn't act like he is. So that's one of the things that I, I very subtly push against in, the, in, in those chapters in the book is the idea that we should just – I think that work, family, religion, community, all of those things have to kind of be lumped together. We can't just separate them out and compartmentalize. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for – or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Something I'm interested in, and I think your point about... Um, I don't want these amenities. I just want money. I think that in my view, that is very much of a sense that sometimes it feels as if you are receiving those amenities instead of money. Yes, you make $25,000 a year living in D.C., which is not very much money, but you have free avocados, <laughs> which at a certain point you're like, I would prefer fewer avocados and more money. But yeah. um, I was thinking a lot about how the prescriptions for the book that you add in the end are kind of to revitalize community through the establishment of institutions yep. or the reestablishment of institutions. I'd like to hear more about your thoughts on how best to do that. You talk a lot about the separation of kind of elites or people with tight communities and people without tight communities. And I think that you see that not even necessarily in kind of factory economies, but with service economies, mm -hmm. where the people in the gig economy, the people who clean your hotel rooms are people you literally do not see. Yep. You talk about how religious institutions are places where people who 
provide services and people who receive services can come together. At my church, it's a place where the people who own the company and the people who work for the company and people who clean up the company after hours can all come together in one entity. It is still in a wealthy area because I live in D.C. where technically everywhere is a wealthy area, (laughs) even if the people within it are not. But it is a way in which class differences of many types break down. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on how to reestablish those institutions. Well, I, you're talking about church being a great way to do it, and that's, that's one of my first things, is that churches need to assert themselves, and Americans need to think about church institutions as being great institutions of civil society that will serve the poor, that will bring people together, that will give you an opportunity to serve others and thus help you develop a, uh, a sense of purpose. My sort of message to conservatives is to sort of abandon some of the individualistic and uh, and simple nuclear family talk. My message to the left is a lot trickier. It's to welcome churches as institutions of civil society, that we shouldn't say church's job is just to – that's where you pray. Right. Nancy Pelosi, when trying to defend her position on the little sisters of the poor, said, well, I do my religion on Sundays. And she was just trying to say, I don't want to argue about this now, but it was such a grating term. Like you you can't just do your religion on Sundays. Christians specifically, I can speak about them, have a duty to feed the poor. And so they have to be able to go out and do these. But there is sort of a, a secular idea that's really taken hold in Europe and in some parts of the, of the U.S., particularly on the left, that churches need to just butt out of the public square. You can't get money for your playgrounds. There's a whole lawsuit right. about that. Um, so welcome all institutions into the public square, and that that is going to be a key part of it. I do talk specifically about unions. A story I first read on Vox.com was about the Ghent system. Right. Um, that the, they're the unions. People join it because they see an immediate material good, which is unemployment insurance. But then from being part of it, they get all these other later goods that they didn't necessarily expect about the camaraderie, about training, about solidarity, et cetera. So I, I do have some policy reforms in there along those lines. Certainly communities need to be built more walkable. This was probably the most radical transformation of my thought in working on this was going from not caring about urbanism to realizing, wait a second, if my kids could just run around, my kids can just run around, but there's not sort of enough kids in the neighborhood that do it. But if the more that kids can just run around, the more that strong community is available to the middle class and the working class and the poor. And so that's hugely important. But mostly I don't have a big policy fix because you can't make a federal department of local community cohesion. That would be counterproductive. You can change housing regulations and density. You can change housing (laughs) regulations and density, and you can have people building them. Right. I mean, again, it's always on, and it annoys me that it's always on the lefty websites, but it's always on the lefty websites. It's like, here's how to build a block where the middle is a giant playground and dog park, and every dad can stick his head out on the balcony and be like, hey, Joey, you got to come up for lunch or shout down, hey, Bridget, stop beating up that other kid. Right. And so like when I see those things, I'm like, this is this is right. It's too hard. So I was in Uniontown, PA, and I asked a bartender, I said, what's it like raising the kids here? And she said, oh, you can raise kids here. You just have to constantly pay attention to who they're playing with. You have to You can't just let them run around the neighborhood because too many people are on drugs and and this sort of thing. And I thought, that's 
that's not at all the way we're supposed to raise kids. And that the more walkable it is, the safer your neighborhood is, the less people out of despair are turning to drugs, the more that uh, family rearing or having a dog or finding a job or anything you might want to do in life, what's going to solve that is not some program, either by a, a nonprofit or a government agency, what's going to solve all those things that we need in life is being connected to other people who are actually physically proximate to us. And so, yeah, there are more local and state policy reforms that can do it. But the biggest thing is going to be everybody listening to this podcast and reading my book should go out there and join their, their local things. And you'll be surprised if you're voting for Bernie Sanders because you say, I need to be empowered again. You'll be surprised. You'll belong to that club for two weeks and people are going to come up to you and say, hey, by the way, can you run this right. ministry, this organization? And you're going to be able to run it however you want because you're in charge of it. So I'm interested because this gets back to something I talk about a lot, which is kind of the breakdown between kind of populist conservatism and libertarian conservatism because there was mm -hmm. a dust up. Well, a small dust-up. Sometimes occasionally when I re reference like a dust-up or our disagreement happening. There were 40 tweets. Yeah. <laughs> right. There were 40 tweets, but they were deeply felt. Um, but the conservative writer Kevin Williamson, mm -hmm. um, who is libertarian-leaning, writing uh, at the time or for National Review, basically made the argument of like, oh, your town is dying. Get up and move. Just loot. Just leave. U-Haul conservatism, I call right. it. And a host of generally Trump supporters who were thinking that's my area in Uniontown, Pennsylvania or in Appalachia or in Xenia, or in any area of the country. We're saying, like, no, like that's my town. Yeah. And I think at the time, I was thinking of that in terms of, like, this is something that non-white Americans have been, you know, we've heard this a million times, and the response that we've gotten has not been the same one. But I'm interested in how much of your thoughts on this have you shifted away from kind of a libertarian free market perspective towards more of a populist perspective? Or is that where you started out? Because I'm, I'm interested in this idea that, like, for some conservatives, these towns are, like, quote, unquote, real America. Mm -hmm. And for other conservatives, it's like, fuck these towns. You should leave. Go you know, go yeah. west, young man. That's kind of been the, the story of America is the, yeah, there striking two, out on your own. There are two sort of contradictory stories of America. One is the... We all, and I think I use the, the uh, example that someone in, in Germany gave me is Europe was full of two kinds of people. One were like the people who all followed the rules and worked yeah. together and the other were the individualistic entrepreneurs and the second people all got on a boat and came to America and you go west and uh, and and all that. You're, you're free when you can't hear the sound of your neighbor chopping wood anymore. But then the other story is the one Alexis de Tocqueville and Norman Rockwell tell us. We right. think we're constantly uniting even more than the Europeans. Is So th those kind of contradict one another. And it's hard for me to say, to tell people what to do. And I talked to a black pastor from Prince George's County when I was working on this, and he just said he constantly finds himself in the middle of his sermons almost saying, like, you guys can succeed and get out of here. Um, now, now he's in a middle-class parish in Prince George's County, but when he was in a, a bad neighborhood in D.C., and then he would think, wait a second, no, I don't want you to get out right. of here. And so I'm, I'm saying I don't have an answer for this. One, I'm not going to tell anybody not to leave or to leave. The main thing I would definitely reject, though, is sort of the U-Haul libertarian line that you should follow your economic opportunity. If you are leaving where you're leaving because there's no opportunity for you and your family, it's a cost because there might be people in your community who would benefit from you staying. But when you end up somewhere else, end up there 
with the intention of planting roots and giving of yourself to that community, not just taking out what you can. One of the big problems is how transactional we are in life. And so we need to be more relational. And so that's that's what I would say. I'm not going to say whether you should stay or shouldn't stay in Garbutt, New York, which is a, the town Michael Brennan Doherty wrote about and, and uh, Williamson said, get out of Garbutt. I am going to say that if you move out of Garbutt, don't go somewhere just because you're going to get more cash in exchange for your labor. <laughs> I'm going to give you labor. You're going to give me cash. And I'm moving to this town because I can profit here is not a good human way to live. You should say, I'm moving here. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to give what I have. I'm going to belong to things. I'm going to join things. I'm going to start things. I'm going to make this a better place to live simply in the way that a tree makes, you know, a forest a better place by providing more homes for birds, et cetera. Planting roots has has got to be part of your decision. So it's certainly the sometimes libertarian tendency towards being overly transactional is part of the the problem. So something I, I do want to get into is you talk a little bit about race in the book and talking about how for a lot of these towns, there was kind of a, I talk about residential segregation as a continued scourge, mm-hmm. especially because residential segregation means that our concept of what other people are like oh, yeah. is skewed yeah. and limited and comes to a prism of bad things. But you talk about, you know, people were like, my neighborhood, which used to look this way until these people came. So how much of what's taking place right now is the kind of almost inevitable result of the end of Jim Crow, so to speak? My grandmother and grandfather's experience on the black side of my family is coming up from Georgia and Mississippi to Cincinnati, living in a redland area, um, having to get a letter from the arch archbishop in order to attend the church that my grandmother desegregated because wow. she's a badass. And they told her to sit at the back of the church and she refused. And then she went straight up to the front, sat down and was there for 60 years. But how much of this is taking place in a time where the free movement of people is actually free, mm-hmm. where communities that were at one time based on the color line, where everyone was looked the same because of legal reasons, yep. how much of the current alienation in these shifting and dying towns is the result of what happens when you don't you aren't propped up by government led segregation? Well, I mean, I think I touch on that in like three or four ways without diving headfirst because I'm not an expert into Jim Crow and, and desegregation. But one of the ways I I do a- acknowledge, I say, one of the reasons a white guy outside of Pittsburgh today is not doing as well as his grandfather in 1955 is that his grandfather in 1955 was protected from competition with black people, with would-be immigrants, with, peop- with workers in China and with women, et cetera. So that's related. I do think that neighborhoods changing is something that people have always gotten upset about, and it's not inherently wrong. That's why I used to talk about gentrification there. Right. What's, what's the line? You can't just come into a neighborhood where we've been doing things for years and then say we have to do things differently. Now, this was about black neighborhoods. Spike Lee. Spike Lee get, saying you can't just come in and say we're not allowed to you know, be loud and rowdy on our front porch because that's not the way you do it. We've been doing it here forever. You can't change the rules. And so that's very analogous to the guy whose neighborhood is now getting a lot of Salvadoran immigrants and there's loud music. I mean, in my neighborhood, the only people who play loud music till 1130 on a Sunday night 
it's this Hispanic family on the corner, and it's always around some Catholic holiday. So I can never, or First Communion or something like that. So I can never complain. I think it's great. But in Montgomery County, Maryland, playing loud music at 1130 on a a school night is not a normal thing. And if some people are going to be upset about that because their kids can't sleep, are we going to say, oh, well, you're just racist? No, different customs and different communities have their own customs. We don't just have one way of living in America. And so when your neighborhood starts changing and the customs and which stores are open and which stores are closed are changing, for somebody to be upset, yeah, you can say some of that has to do with racism, but I don't think that's a useful way to break it down. Now, what I don't get into in the book very much, I do talk about Fishtown, uh, Philadelphia, is black people moving in to white neighborhoods and um, I do talk about how basically a black family got chased out right. of Fishtown, which was this sort of Polish, Irish, Catholic community. And I don't talk about it that much because I was born in 1978 in New York. And the idea to me, the, the, the difference between when there's no language difference, culturally, I can't understand why somebody would say these black people moving in are, are changing my neighborhoods. That's just not anything. I've never known anybody who said, oh, well, this was a good neighborhood and now the black people live here. I have known lots of people who said all my stores are closed down and now they're all selling only you know, Hispanic food and Central American food and I don't like that. Or I have a language barrier with my neighbor. So the, the, the Jim Crow question is in some ways above my pay grade, but I would say this, that America's always adapted. Right. So I don't want to say we need to have just Irish neighborhoods and Polish neighborhoods like we used to, even though there was a real virtue to that. What we haven't done ever well is have strong, cohesive communities that are diverse along multiple dimensions. My parish is a rare exception to this. My Catholic parish has every race, has, you know, 50 different countries uh, as far as ancestry represented, has all sorts of rich, poor, a lot of middle class. And we're all either Catholic or want Catholic education for our children. Right. And so that's sort of my response is the Catholic Church might have helped integrate that neighborhood in a way that that neighborhood might not have been integrated if not for a church saying, yes, it's okay that you're here. I was thinking about like areas that are diverse along multiple Uh, prisms, so to speak. And I keep thinking about parts of D.C. And I think that in the areas I've lived, in the cities I've lived that were the least segregated, for example, I lived in St. Louis for a while, and Mm -hmm. St. Louis is extremely segregated. But when I think about New York, for example, that is a place where many different kinds of people come together, but they are unified by being New Yorkers, Mm -hmm. they think, you know, like, well, I came from all of these different places, but I redefined myself as a New Yorker. You redefine yourself as a part of your community. I've lived in D.C. for 10 years now, which for actual people from D.C. is nothing. But for D.C. is a very long time. Yes. And I think of myself in some way as a like a D.C. resident. I think it's part of your identity. I think of things in D.C. terms. When I lived in Chicago this past fall, I thought, wow, this place is really big and everything's very far away because I live in D.C. where I can walk everywhere. So is there a way in which the community itself can be the identity where when there's kind of the keep Austin weird idea or the idea of the community itself is the bond, the no matter where you're from, we can all find a home in Cincinnati or something like that, which is yeah. where I'm from. So I, I, one of the things I say is that people have to have multiple layers of identity. I think a lot of radicalism comes when people put their whole uh, – a lot of extremism comes when people put their whole identity in just 
one thing. So I have a, a Catholic parish. I'm an Irish American. I'm conservative. I'm kind of libertarian. I have places of employment. Yeah. We have schools we send our kids to. We have a pool. I have a local pub. All these things overlap. They're on sort of different dimensions. They're different sizes. And a, a neighborhood community, like I am somebody who lives in Petworth, that can be part of it. It's not going to be adequate because to really form a strong sense of cohesion, there has to be something bigger than an individual outside of yourself, a joint higher purpose that you're engaged in. So a lot of times this is why sometimes difficulties or tragedies end up bringing neighborhoods together because suddenly you're realizing, wait a second, there is this bigger problem and we're going to fight it for the sake of not just my myself and my own family, but everybody else. So yeah, the local pride, like sort of hipster local pride, I think is a, a great development, especially to the degree that it's outside of just sort of self-actualization, but is sacrifice and commitment. It's, it's a planting of roots. So when I see, you know, the bartender with the DC flag tattoo, I'm always thinking, that's great. That's somebody who doesn't think I'm simply a, uh, you know, I'm simply an American and a bartender and I'm trading my labor for right. whatever and I live in D.C. because I want these practical goods at it. It's somebody who loves this and has planted their roots. And you see it a lot with journalists where there are people who are like, I'm in Miami because I'm from Miami. And uh, there's one writer for the Miami New Times who says, I love Florida as much as you hate it. Right. And I, I love that line. Yeah. And so I do think People having local pride is good, especially because that is a sort of identity that isn't necessarily antagonistic. I mean, Ohio people are going to rag on Michigan people, are going to rag on Ohio people, but there really aren't that many murders across the Ohio-Michigan border. That is true, and it's to everyone's benefit that the Battle of Toledo ended largely peacefully. Yeah, and and D.C., like, you know, I live in D.C., you live in D.C., I live in uh, in Silver Spring, and Silver Spring doesn't really have an identity. We're an unincorporated area. If you look at Silver Spring on a map, it looks like a gerrymandered congressional district, right? And there's no local government, there's no mayor, there's – but kind of around my metro stop in my local <laughs> pub, there's a little bit more right. uh, of that identity. So I do think people need to have local identity. I think people need to have – I think one of the worries is that people too much in this country have one identity. And maybe it's I'm a Trump supporter. Maybe it's I'm resistance. Maybe it's I'm white. When you have just one identity, I think that's more likely to lead to strife. It's interesting also because I think that there's sometimes kind of a ref, like a reflexive anti-identity. Yes. And you see this and people like, you know, like the coastal elites aren't like that's not real America or something like that. And I'm like, all of America is real America. Like Hawaii is real America. Yeah. Juneau, Alaska is real America. And but I do get that that there's a sense, I think, especially for folks from the Midwest, where New York is like New York. Miami is Miami. L.A. is L.A. Cincinnati is Cincinnati, unless you're from Cincinnati, in which case you're like, we have these traditions and we, you know, this strong system of Catholic high schools, which is why we had Catholic Schools Week, the greatest mm -hmm. week of all. Yes. This idea that like Midwestern identity, I think in some ways is subsumed as just being kind of like, well, you're all very polite and you like casseroles and wearing sweaters, which is true. And they but say casserole, by the way. There's no there's no article and they don't put an S. It's casserole. It's not the way we do it in New York. Um, but it, it's interesting how much of that, I think, is 
this idea of kind of like, I'm in flyover country. I'm like, no, you're not in flyover country. Yeah. You're in Finley, Ohio, Flag City, USA. Like, no, and, I and, think that, and that kind of mass media centralization of our attention is one of the right. things I talk about there. And and it was, I was, so Will Wilkinson is a, a, a friend of mine who lives in, in Iowa, and he said he always gets depressed about the homogeneity of rural America, that too much it's like Duck Dynasty and too little is it we're Akron, the rubber capital of America. Right. And if if you in Akron think you're the same sort of uh, person as the people in Little Rock, then you've certainly lost a sense of identity. So it's not just that we coastal elites blur them into one. It's that a little too much of the middle America identity is blurring into one. And this is why I, I think Trump is uh, as, as a negative effect in this way. Especially when he said, we're going to have the greatest 4th of July and like it's going to be the national celebration. And I thought, oh, my God, 4th of July is a perfect example of what American patriotism is because it's a love of our country. It's sticking it to the Brits and it's locally it's manifested. It's celebrated locally. Yes. Like when I was growing up, we you know, would go to um, – there were friends of my parents who had like this giant backyard and we'd blow off sparklers and their yeah. dogs all had to take medication because <laughs> we were m- maniac children. But it's a very local concept. And I actually find um, – you know, As are the Memorial Day parades. Right. This idea it, – it, I think that that is an interesting idea of kind of the nationalization of identity, the nationalization of like – I'm a real American. And then you look and you're like, it's, you know, it's said by a senator who went to like Stanford and Oxford and Harvard, which are all great places where real Americans have attended. Because if you're an American, you're a real American. There are no counterfeit Americans. And I think it's interesting, though, because um, I think for a lot of people, especially in journalism, our understanding of the Midwest is not based on flyover. It's based on the fact that, like, we left those places. Um, mm-hmm. When we did our uh, episode of The Weeds with Mayor Pete Buttigieg at South by Southwest, he, obviously being from South Bend, kind of made the case, like, you know, you should come on home to the Midwest. And I was like, there is a reason why people left. I could not have U-hauled anywhere when I was mm-hmm. 18 because I had no money, and that's not how that works. But there was very much of a sense that Cincinnati, and I think for a lot of people from the Midwest, there's kind of an idea of like, there's a reason why in St. Louis and Cincinnati, the first question is not, what do you do? It's where did you go to high school? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying one question is better than the other, um, but it is interesting how much of a lot of those, a lot of reporters now, obviously a lot of reporters are from New York or from LA, but a lot of people are like, yeah, I grew up in Cedar Rapids and I got out as soon as I could because you kind of saw what was coming. Mm-hmm. You kind of saw the people where it's like that guy who sits on his porch all day smoking cigarettes, he's been there for 25 years doing mm-hmm. the same thing. And if you go back home, he's still there. And I think that that perhaps is part of why I think the idea of the Midwest, not what the Midwest actually is, because sometimes I, I think that people forget Chicago exists. Mm-hmm. And Chicago is a massive city in the Midwest. But I do think that that contributes to our understanding of the Midwest is very much of like, it's not it's not even the place where we're from. It's the place that we left. The place that you left. And some of it is sort of seeing that there's a limited opportunity. But I think a lot of it has to do with the personality traits of a journalist and that seeing there. Remember that Onion article a few years ago? It's like none of these people can understand why this guy, like miserable guy, moved back home and he's raising his kids and he's got a nine to five job and he knows all his neighbors. I think a lot of journalists are that person. So I, when I've had my jobs move around, 
Um, and I moved from being uh, an editor to at the examiner to being a columnist. I changed my role at AEI and somebody said, okay, so explain this to me. Does this mean you don't have to travel anymore? And I thought, oh my God, I would never want a job where I don't have to travel. I always want to see a new part of America, right? Right. But at the same time, I'm the guy who's like running a t-ball team. <laughs> I have six kids. I do everything I can to be involved in my community. But still, if I'm not going, there, there's parts of America I haven't been to, and that keeps me up at night. Right. That's not a normal character trait, but it's very big among uh, journalists. So the idea that I need to get out and and see more, there's so much, this is a bigger, greater world. Half of me understands that that's almost a, a malady. I mean, honestly, if I was just in my own parish, St. Andrew Apostle in Silver Spring, Maryland, and just doing t-ball in Sunday school, which mm-hmm. I do, with my six kids, and and I were stuck there, I'd be happy. Right. I call it stuck because I'm, you know, a, a journalist. So that's part of the the perception is that the media class might have just natural character traits that wants us, you know, the, the, all those articles. Oh, all these people who don't have, uh, who don't even have passports. How small minded they are. I was like, how about all these people who have never coached a t-ball team? Right. That's so interesting because that is, you know, my parents have lived in Cincinnati. They've been married for it's forty years. It'll be forty one years this November, mm-hmm. and. Cincinnati is all they need. They have their community. They have their neighbors. The neighbors that they've had are the neighbors we've had for a million and 12 years. And how how rich is that? That's not small-mindedness. It's great. And it's funny because it must seem, from just a generational perspective, and you you talk about this a little bit um, when you talk about kind of the gig economy. And I remember once trying to count up all the jobs I'd had. And to me, it was like, yeah, that's like the right number of jobs. (laughs) And for my dad, he was a a research librarian. And his resume would essentially be like, research librarian, 35 years, retired. And (laughs) I think that that is, we are in the midst of such a degree of change. And so much of that is made more complicated and confusing because Rational decision makers, which we all like to think mm-hmm. that we are, all make rational decisions that are in completely irrational to other people. I think it would be awesome if my parents would get on a plane every once in a while. Mm-hmm. They think it would be awesome if I would move back to Cincinnati, live next door, and help them keep bees and chickens. But it's interesting because I think that what we're seeing in a lot of ways is, and you describe this in your book a little bit, is that these communities are suffering but it's not necessarily that anyone really did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. A lot of rational people made decisions. A lot of rational people were like, these nails are way cheaper than the nails that were made by the steel company. Yep. It would be better for me to move to this community. It would be better for me to do these things. Even in some ways, like, you, um, you know, we started out talking about internet commenters and the men who've kind of dropped out of the workforce, which is why I, when I think about unemployment data and I'm like, who are we counting here? Yeah, The internet makes you feel like you're getting a lot more done than you actually are. <laughs> so when you talk about people, you know, like, yeah. what do they do? It's just like, oh, they're watching TV or they're playing video games or they're online. And I'm like, I bet if you, if, um, anyone has ever been unemployed for any period of time, there are lots of days in which you can completely fill your time not really doing anything, but feeling as if you've done a great deal on the internet. Yeah, And so it's interesting because I feel like this particular issue 
which you note, like there are no real solutions to it because it's a lot of rational decision makers who made rational decisions that look irrational to other people and had unforeseen consequences. And what's going to make people sort of get back to work if they're out of a job? They need there needs to be jobs available, but a lot of it is going to be if you're in a community that a expects you right. to get back to work and b will connect you with people. If if I lost my job and I work two jobs, if I lost both of my jobs, my whole parish would know it. The carpool where my kids are would know it. My wife's book club would know it, and all of them who have connections would be trying to get me a job. Now, I live in my, – my circles range from the middle class to the elite, and so they're they're more powerful. But even for the middle class and the working class, just having those good you, – you know a guy. Right. Even if you don't know a guy who works at a big law firm or who is a publisher of a newspaper. But the problem is not that the, the working class and poor circles are not as connected to power. It's they're not as tight-knit as they used to be and not as tight-knit as – the elite circles are. Right. And that, that's sort of the, the heart of what I'm, I'm arguing in this you, book. You talk about kind of the Lena Dunham fallacy, which is the <laughs> idea that conservatives have that like elite liberals are just complete libertines when yes. they, you the, know, based on just anic data, which yes. um, I've been to a lot of weddings of a lot <laughs> of people I went to an elite college with um, who have all done the uh, the success the sex track. sequence. Yeah, they, yeah. Get, they finish school, they get a job, they get married, they have kids, and they get involved in their kids' lives and right. stay in their communities. Exactly. In that order, and it's like, so this, this so here's my, one of my uh, uh, requests for people on the left is, so many of you guys are living the sort of 1950s world that you're, <laughs> you're bad-mouthing at the same time. Realize that the ideal situation is for uh, children to be raised in a uh, by a married couple who's dedicated to being married for life and immersing them in a tight knit community that shares your values, and that that sort of was one of the things that was overthrown in a lot of the the cultural change of the of the last fifty years, and that that's the people who are the most successful in America today are the people who are doing that. The people who aren't getting married are not the liberated women because they have the law degree. The people who aren't getting married in America today are the working class women who increasingly only know working class men because of geographic, because of segregation based on income and education. And those working class men, for whatever reason, won't marry them, aren't fit to be yeah. married or et cetera, that the the liberated, the more liberated you are, the more educated and the more income you have as a woman, the more likely you are to be married. And so that's a lesson for conservatives who shouldn't think that all these, they hear about the liberal elites and they assume that they're all Lena Dunham. Now, Lena Dunham itself is already an outdated thing, right? Because right. when I think about the, the today's celebrities, it's like the Kardashians are kind of family people. Yeah, they're really, it's interesting because some, some of them like, yeah, like Beyonce and Jay-Z are Beyonce, married yeah. and have children. Like, all of these people, even, like, at the end of Girls, like, Lena Dunham has a child. Like, they, I think that it, it's interesting how much of our popular culture, I would argue, in some ways, is to be interpreted as kind of, like, idea casting, where it's not necessarily about something that you—I you. you know, I remember, um, as someone who is super into metal, there was a host—a lot of people being very worried that, like, you know, if you listen to Marilyn Manson, you're going to go kill Kill somebody. yourself or somebody else. Yeah. Right, exactly. When it just turned out that, like, when you listen to Marilyn Manson, you eventually—I don't know. It I just seemed like the crossover between people who listen to a lot of metal and people who, like, 
think deeply about libertarianism. It seems like the like I remember like that at a certain point I was like, are all Rush fans like super into like libertarian libertarian circles attract a lot of strange people. But it's interesting how there's kind of the how our popular culture works is not necessarily as like a as a model, but kind of as wish casting. Mm-hmm. But um so Tim, for the Ezra Klein show, we like to ask people for three book recommendations. So what are three books that you think people should read or think about or purchase? Great. In the orbit of alienated America, I would say certainly Chris Arnotti's Dignity is is a great book. Uh everybody should should read that. It's uh, also got uh, his beautiful photography in it. I I couldn't put it down. We were talking about identity earlier. Michael Brendan Doherty's My Father Left Me Ireland is a uh, an amazing book. It's beautiful. It's brief. It's written poetically. It doesn't have all the social science that I weigh down alienated America with. Um, and ev- everybody should read that. And it's a great uh, great argument for why people need identity in the in common in modern American life. And I think people need to read the Bible, Jane. Um, <laughs> it's it's a fascinating book, even just as a historical document, especially yes. because it features. Um, I've I've argued the Bible features a lot of people, rational beings, acting irrationally, like seeing Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, and thinking real estate opportunity. <laughs> let's put up some tents. And I, Jesus looking at Peter like, dude, dude. I I and I I say this um, as a Catholic, meaning someone who reading the Bible isn't always something no. we remember to do every day. But now that I'm a Sunday school teacher, every once in a while they say, okay, Tim, your job is to explain this story. When I got to tell David and Goliath to right. second graders, and one of the second graders ended by saying awesome kill. I was thinking <laughs> more people need to read this book. It's also funny though because um you know I was raised Catholic so I went to Sunday I went to Catholic school and also went to Sunday school and it's really interesting how when you read the Bible which I've done a couple of times there's a lot of stuff that gets left out from like Sunday school like yes. the entire book of numbers yes. which just features a prophet in prison and the king repeatedly asking him like will you stop doing this and he's like no I won't. And this goes on for a while but then also there's Acts of the Apostles in which Judas explodes and uh, angels also ref- uh, rescue people from prison. It's a great book. Like, uh, yes. I joke uh, with a friend of mine that I'm still kind of surprised that we have not gotten like we need to get back to biblical epics. <laughs> but like we need to do the biblical epics. That's like, no, this is what's I think the show Kings tried to do this a mm-hmm. little bit, but it didn't it didn't last. But there's just a lot of stuff where I'm like, we could. it's a wild book. I people, agree. People get uh, murdered for making fun of someone's baldness. Like, it's it's a great read. And we shouldn't even give a spoiler of what happens to John the Baptist. That one is pretty <laughs> shocking. Tim Carney, thanks for joining us on The Ezra Klein Show. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tim for joining me. The Ezra Klein Show is produced and edited by Jeff Geld. Our researcher is Roger Karma, and our engineer is Cynthia Gill. The Ezra Klein Show is a production of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Ezra will be back on Monday. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.